Welcome to All Write in Sin City, a podcast about writers and writing in the Windsor, Detroit region. Your podcasters today are Sarah Jarvis, former bookseller, publishing rep, and literary festival chair, Kim Conklin, Windsor based writer and filmmaker, and me, Irene Moore Davis, author, educator, and local historian. Holdstock is an award-winning Canadian author, originally from the UK. She writes literary fiction, essays, and poetry. Her novels have been published in the UK, the US, Brazil, Portugal, Australia, and Germany. In Canada, her work has been shortlisted for a number of awards, including the Best First Novel Award, the Commonwealth Writers' Prize, and the Scotiabank Giller Prize. Pauline's essays and book reviews appear in Canada's national newspapers and have been broadcast on CBC Radio. Pauline has served on faculty of the Victoria School of Writing, the University of Victoria, and the Banff Centre for the Arts. She lives on Vancouver Island. Welcome, Pauline. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. We're happy to have you. Your new book, Confessions with Keith, is a domestic comedy about a writer and mother of an unruly house full of children. Her 20-year marriage appears to be falling apart more quickly than her disaster-prone home. Why did you choose to write a domestic comedy? And what do you think makes this genre refreshing or relevant for today's fiction readers? Why I chose to do it was uh, feeling a need to break from some of that heavier stuff that I was writing. Um, the historical novels were very meaty, involved uh, a lot of research. And it, it was so nice to sit down to begin a book where I really didn't have to do a lot of research. I've I've lived that raising raising four children um, and trying to write at the same time, and the chaos that ensues from that that collision of the two paths. So it, it was familiar territory to me, and all I had to do was set the players in place and invent. Um, sequences for them to go through this crisis together. So uh, it's a very different kind of writing for me, very different. And uh, you also asked, um, uh, how is how is it relevant today? I set it in the 90s. So uh, uh, that I... I realized when I when I started putting it together, that is a completely different world. It is not so long ago, really. Um, but it's you know, cell phones had just really begun to be used among teens and so on. And uh they were not used in the same way they are now. It wasn't a complete connection to the entire world. Uh, they were a means of communication, setting up plans. Uh, so that's just one example of how the world was very different. The internet hadn't been going for very long. Uh, social media, of course, had not exploded the way uh, you know we know it now. Um, the world of Twitter, for instance, was way off in the dark distance 
So um, in terms of relevance for now, the, the parts that are relevant remain those um, that domestic core, um, which, you know, is is always it's always good material for comedy for humor um it's it's people just trying to get along together and make things work and um that's not ever going to go out of style we're always going to be doing that we'll we'll never have the answers ready on a plate we'll never enter that situation knowing all the answers it's a, a learn as you go kind of experience in the beginning Vita is constantly fighting with her husband to the point where she thinks couldn't we have a wholly new and absorbing row <laughs> and yet she seems to be the only person who's unaware that her husband is seeing somebody else is she really that out of touch she's very blinkered she's very blinkered she's focused uh, for for a start, she she's raising the four kids, um, so that's quite enough for anybody. But she's also completely focused on her um, fledgling career. So she's she's not really she's not. I guess she's not really um, worried that that would happen. She just assumes it's work or whatever. And she hasn't really looked any further. And one of the one of the things that I think afflicts people in the um, in those kind of middle years of a marriage when everybody is so busy, including the kids, um, it's the lack of opportunity to sit down and really connect. So it's, I've, I always think it's the ships that pass in the night. You know, it's the, it's the thrown out remark or the question or, you know, the, uh, the reminder. And it's, it's never a real conversation because there just isn't time. It's this, it's this whirl of activity that pulls you through. And, uh, people fall by the wayside. <laughs> I mean, she's, she's obviously bright. So uh, do you think she's suppressing the knowledge to protect herself as well in some sort of subliminal way? No, I don't think so. She genuinely doesn't know. Well, Vita also takes refuge in her appointments with Keith, which is where the title of the book comes from, um, her longtime hairdresser. And he's kind of a philosopher as well. You know, he cuts her hair absently as if its length is of no consequence. And he pauses often, scissors aloft and marvels at the wonders of the world. What what do you think makes Keith and Vita's relationship so special? And how does that relationship develop through the book? Well, it's um it's a sanctuary for Vita. It's a place to go where there actually is time because it's the time it takes for him to cut her hair, and he's very, very slow. And, and there are no no other demands. Um, nobody's opening the door and coming in and, and asking where their lunch is or what's for dinner. 
it's it's a sanctuary where a conversation can really happen. Um, the realization that she comes to gradually is that um, he is, of course, is not a philosopher at all. He's just repeating the things that he's heard from the last client. And he becomes a kind of um, an icon of a, a figure in the in the community who will um, maybe like an oracle. Um, people can visit and uh, learn a nugget of truth or some such. Throughout the book, Vita and Jack appear to be drawn to each other while they also torture one another. What does Vita think love is? What does she think she wants? And is that what she really wants? Oh, I don't think she has time to think. She doesn't have time for conversation. She doesn't have time to think. Um, what, do, what does she really want? Uh, a smooth existence, I think. A smooth existence. She is, she is still very much in love with Jack. Jack is still, I think, very much in love with her. Um, it's the circumstances that have destroyed the relationship. Another source of chaos and tension between Vita and Jack is Blackguard, the dog. What does Blackguard re represent to Vita? And to the to story. Vita, he's just another element of chaos. Um, iconically in the book, he's the element of chaos. It is the black dog that comes charging through our lives with stolen material in its mouth, uh, depositing it on the carpet right in the middle of the room for everybody to see. So the blackguard is something of a metaphor as well. Um, uh, for Vita, it's just one more element in her life. I, they're probably all equal for Vita. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing to come through. Um, so you you mentioned sort of the black dog. Are you making any kind of reference to the black dog as Winston Churchill had it? You know, sort of the, an occasional source of, of depression, of, you know, just interfering with their life? Or yes, no, I, I'd love to know more about that. Please tell me. Oh. <laughs> it sounds as well, if I it would have fitted in beautifully. Story. Yeah, but apparently uh, Winston Churchill would refer to his own depression as the black dog when it came to visit. Okay. And it was sort of like it was understood between himself and his wife and his intimates that when the black dog came, you know, he wouldn't be much used to, to many people. Oh, where were you, Sarah, when I was writing the book? I <laughs> suppose <laughs> <laughs> each reader takes whatever from writing, which is a wonderful thing, isn't it? You're writing automatically sort of spreads into different directions in the in the minds of the reader. So um, right, right. that's a beautiful thing that you've done. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Jack leaves, Vita begins a new food porn writing project that brings her some success. So, which is a, kind of a lot of fun throughout the book. What was your inspiration for that particular project? Oh, I... 
the ins <laughs> the inspiration was really initially looking for a genre for her to work in um and um i had actually written a, <laughs> a poem um because i i became so tired of reading the same metaphors and similes about women's bodies um, in poetic descriptions. And so I decided I would write my own poem and use um, place names from the Times Atlas of the World and construct the entire poem out of place names. <laughs> And it was one of the most absorbing projects I've ever had. And it actually read as a really good erotic poem. And, <laughs> and around this time, um, M.A.C. Farrant and I were running a, a, a reading series in Sydney. And uh, we decided because the... the um, erotic readings had become so popular at the time we would have an erotic reading festival and we invited some victoria poets to come with their erotic poetry and it was actually the most successful <laughs> of the evenings that we had because we had a poster made and of course you know this is this is small town sydney and what is all this about you know so we actually had uh lineups for this evening of poetry <laughs> well people so are always curious about the erotic attended <laughs> people are always curious about the erotic yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's great the novel ends with a tale from 1001 Nights about a merchant who gets lost at sea for years and comes home to find his stock of vinegar has turned to fine wine. Do you see that as a parable about a shift in perspective or about patience and time, perhaps? Uh, well, again, I wish I had at the time. I, I saw it as... Um, as an opportunity to deflate the ideal because um, it ends, of course, with the, the exact opposite. There's no fine wine there um, without giving away the actual final line of the book. Um, so it, it was more an opportunity to show wishful thinking um, and perhaps a projection into the future that eventually this um, this whole process would turn into something more like fine wine. Years down the road, that's what you would hope for, something more mellow. What are you writing now? Now you've had this sort of break from the historical novels, are you back to doing research or are you... No, no, I'm not. Um, I'm putting together some short stories. So I think I have enough for a collection. And uh, it's just pulling pulling it all together and, and presenting it to, um, to the publisher. 
Would you like to read a little bit from Confessions with Keith for the audience? I would love to. I would love to. And I I do actually have um, a piece that begins with that reference to the, the food porn. I was looking for something that uh, was around this time that we're um, getting together here. So I found uh, November 28th. The, the book is um, in journal form. It's a diary and it's extracts from her diary. And I found that was something that um, that works really well when you're trying to manipulate humor because um, it's written in the first person and the first person is not always seeing, although she thinks she is, she's not always seeing as much as, as the reader sees. So there's that drop in between the two perspectives. November 28th, work on my food porn most mornings now, have even received an advance, $250 for the first piece of 500 words. Astonishing, it only goes to underscore the fact that I have never understood the world of commerce. I am bewildered by the fact that the nonsense I make up about kiwi fruit and mangoes has a cash value in the marketplace. Bananas have served me well, both whole and mashed. I roam the produce section now with new eyes, but fear I shall soon run out of ideas. It is a matter of professional pride to me that I have not yet written about a zucchini and do not intend to. November 30th. Hetty, Hetty is a five-year-old. Hetty is trying to whip up some seasonal excitement here. I am resisting. December 1st. I give up. Jack came over today and put up the Christmas lights. Jack is her husband. He has already left her. He's in an apartment downtown. It was, I suppose, a form of penance for the good time he has had since he has been footloose. The children, though, were disappointed. They would much prefer to go and visit him downtown in his apartment. He said it was rather difficult at the moment. He doesn't have any furniture. I cannot make up my mind whether this is the truth or a craven lie designed to conceal the fact that he has women in crutchless underwear instead of a table and chairs. Could I be losing it altogether? No longer know who I am. Pathetic wronged wife, dangerously crossed queen, or a free broad spirit, a wide open flower inviting bees and poets to dive in. A free broad. I am subject to sudden and wild swings of emotion and suffer alternately from plunging, soul-rotting despair and soaring, blinding elation. The latter usually comes upon me in the car 
I turn up the radio, wind down the window and do high-speed karaoke. Have not yet sung Free Falling, but anything is possible. Life is an open road. The new horizon is in sight and all things are possible. Sometimes the urge to keep on driving is almost irresistible. But freedom is the other face of loneliness. It's usually at home that the black cloud descends and most often in the kitchen when it is time to do the dishes. Hetty asked me this morning if my head was sore. I did not understand. Where you pulled your hair last night, she said, when you were crying. I had thought they were all glued to the TV at the time, thought no one was thought there was no one to see me slide to the floor in best bad movie style and bawl like a motherless child, so occupied with tugging my hair out, so occupied with me. I had no idea the whole appalling exhibition was being witnessed from the doorway. Now there's shame to add to everything else. I've finished with an example of a family dinner on December 12th. This is dinner with Vita and her four children. Dinner was tiring. Dinner is often tiring. Felix told me, and the others supported him, that I practice legislated poverty and they are the victims. He said no one around here agreed to voluntary simplicity. I said, oh, change the subject, please. Miles, who is an eight-year-old, obliged with an offering concerning the length of our intestines, prompting Hetty to share the details of the runover raccoon. Kate, she's her adolescent daughter, Kate soon had the stage with her detailed account of the dissection of a sheep's head in biology and the exciting prospect of cutting up human cadavers at university. I listened politely. I know when I am being goaded. Reminded myself that they are exploring the world around them, that everything is grist for their intellectual mills, and that I am lucky they wish to communicate with me at all. Look, said Felix, poking at the fish on his plate, cadaver juice. It is times like these when I think of Jack in his bare apartment, sitting alone under the naked light bulb in the total silence of his isolation. Bastard. I'll leave it there. Pauline Holstock, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much, Kim, for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Our featured local book is The Principal Chronicles by David Garlick. The Principal Chronicles is a collection of funny and poignant short stories that follow the arc of one man's life and career in education. These works of creative nonfiction, or to be precise, of semi-autobiographical pseudo-nonfictional memoir, have been refined by many years of telling and retelling to David Garlick's friends, family, and especially fellow educators. Some stories such as 
you've got to eat a pound of dirt before you die, depict childhood and teenage hijinks. Others, such as Elvis Presley and my second teaching report, deal with garlic's years in the classroom. Many stories bearing such salient titles as I hate high school swimming pools and sometimes, in fact, almost always they grow up, detail his years as a high school vice principal and principal. Garlic spins lively, engaging tales about the funny situations in which he has so often found himself from his earliest years all the way to retirement and beyond. By turns, candid, poignant, insightful, and surprising, and always gently humorous, these stories invite readers to laugh about humanity's quirks and appreciate the many large and small ways that people show each other kindness every day. David Garlick is a retired educator who spent 14 years of his 33-year career as a high school principal. His long-suffering wife has no idea what he does to cause the incidents he writes about that always seem to happen to him, but he must do something. She's been saying this for more than 32 years. They live together in Windsor, Ontario. He has been denied entry into the National Curmudgeon Club because he always gives the neighbor's kids balls back when they are kicked over his fence. A short, short story. The first thing I did when I found out that Angela Sofranos would be my new vice principal was invite her and her family over for dinner. I'd known her for three years at the time, having been vice principal myself at Forster when she was head of business there. And she replaced me as VP at Forster when I became the principal at Western. We never had any issues that I was aware of during that time, but by the same token, I wasn't completely sure what she thought of me and whether or not she was looking forward to working with me again. Anyway, she, her husband, and their almost impossibly cute five-year-old daughter came over for dinner one evening that summer. We were having a very enjoyable time, and after dinner, we retired to the living room. I excused myself to go to the kitchen to refresh everyone's drinks. I was just pouring the mixers when I felt a tap on my elbow. The almost impossibly cute five-year-old had very quietly followed me into the kitchen. She'd been wonderful all evening, polite, respectful, and funny. She looked around the kitchen, and then she looked behind her, clearly ready to share a secret or two. Then she motioned me to bend over so she could whisper in my ear. Mr. Garlic, do you know what my mother calls you at home? I thought, do I want to hear this? Angela and I are going to have to work together for at least a year. What if she calls me doofus garlic, or worse? Why is she calling me anything at home, in front of her daughter? I like Angela, and I respect her opinion. But I responded almost as quietly. No, no, I don't. What does your mother call me at home? Once again, she looked to the left, then she looked to the right, then she checked behind her. Good, still alone. She whispered. She calls you Dave. Where can you find The Principal Chronicles by David Garlick? Aside from your local independent bookseller, the print book is available at Friesen Press, Amazon, and Barnes and & Noble, and the ebook is available at Kobo, Google Play, Nook, and Apple Books. Thanks for joining us. Look for more episodes of All Right in Sin City wherever you listen to podcasts, or check out our website, allrightinsincity.com. For information and announcements of new podcasts, Sign up to our email list or follow us on Facebook and Twitter.